0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Good morning, OVBC family and friends. Thank you for joining us this morning as we continue our study of Luke's gospel. Bear with us as we work through all the different things of learning how to to work through all the technology, and I'm so thankful that we have this opportunity. Our title this today is, What Should We Do? As we look at our passage from Luke chapter three, verses seven through 14, so I'm gonna ask you, get your Bibles, uh, get a pen and a paper ready. Also during this, we'd like to ask you to do a little video, maybe um, a picture and upload it to Facebook or Instagram of showing that you're joining us this morning. As we start, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had anyone question your motives? Or did you ever do something knowing that you were doing it for the wrong reason? Now, no one likes to have their motives questions, but we also know that people do things for the wrong reasons, even though when we think we're doing it for the right thing. The question we might ask is, does it matter? Two weeks ago, we opened up to the third chapter of Luke's gospel. And in those first six verses, Luke fast forwards about 18 years and really introduces us to John the Baptist and the beginnings of his ministry. After 400 years of silence, Yahweh once again appoints a prophet to declare his word to the people. The theme of that message was a call for the children of Israel to humble themselves in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, as we come to today's passage, Jesus warns his listeners to perform a heart check that will call them to motivational and behavioral adjustments to the way they think and act. So with that, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 3 verses 7 through 14. And in that passage, Luke writes, he said, therefore, to the crowd, speaking of John the Baptist, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and though there is a separation between us we're looking at each other and interacting through screens and different types of technology, we know that you are here with us this morning. So we thank you for Luke's account. We thank you for the ministry of John. We thank you for your word that we have this morning. I pray that you open up our minds and hearts to receive with gladness and joy the challenges, the promises, yes, even the rebukes that are found here in this passage this morning. And I pray that we would respond to your holy word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Luke's narrative gives us an inside look at several of the conversations going on between John the Baptist and some of his listeners. To help us understand what's going on, it's going to be good to remind ourselves of the background of this narrative. Remember, this is after 400 years of silence. Yahweh has finally sent a prophet to declare His word and to prepare His children to receive the Messiah. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, the time was ripe for Christ's appearance. The Jewish people were desperate for deliverance. They had lived the past few centuries under the bondage of one world power after the another, from the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now under Roman rule. Their land was trampled by foreigners that served other gods, political leaders that were cruel and selfish, and religious leaders that insisted on draconian laws, traditions, and customs that were heavy for the people to bear. They had been deceived by so many called messiahs, only to be disappointed and discouraged when deliverance was not forthcoming. Every resistance against the Roman occupiers were defeated, and many had abandoned any hope of Yahweh's promises ever of being fulfilled. It was into this environment that John's voice comes echoing from the wilderness, and his call to repentance spreads throughout the land. Now as we come to Luke chapter 3, John's ministry has grown in popularity and many people are coming from all over the countryside to hear this strange man preach and baptize. His message is clear, his words are authoritative, and his call to action is powerful. But as with any true revival, there are always those who are coming and even responding due just to curiosity, maybe desperation, and even peer pressure. It is here that we find the basis for John's startling accusation and his biting question in verse 7. Again, look with me in your Bible at verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. John says, "...therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him." Here Luke is describing a different group of people than Matthew did in his narrative of John the Baptist. In Matthew's Gospel, John is speaking specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees while Luke focuses on the crowds, the the regular folk, the regular people. Now, the word in Greek, meaning crowd, can mean a, a multitude, a gathering of any size, many times with the implication that these are just common people, not speaking of leaders or nobility. In any case, John is taking a moment to consider all those that are coming out to be baptized. Now, the crowds were people looking for change. They were looking for spirituality for salvation, and some even the Messiah. As Luke Pount points out, it was a crowd of some size with all sorts of people, from farmers to merchants, fishermen, bakers, tax collectors, soldiers, and religious leaders. People from all walks of life, and they were like you and me and that they were looking for something, someone, to deliver them. In John, they thought that he might be that final prophet from from God, or that he might be the Messiah himself. They were searching for answers. People were coming from all parts of the country, listening to his message, proclaiming repentance, and being baptized. And at this point, John looks at the crowd, and he makes a startling accusation against them, in verse 7, by declaring, You brood of vipers. Now at first, This really seems like a good way to offend those that are traveling a long ways and enduring hardship to come hear you speak. And I'm not sure where John got his marketing advice, but I'm sure you're pretty sure most would not recommend this way of speaking to your audience. Yet, what John is doing here by addressing them as snakes is cutting to the motivation of their actions. He's addressing the heart, not their social status or economic status or their political leanings, No, he's zeroing in on why are you coming to hear him and responding to his message. By referring to them as vipers, he's almost accusing them of being sneaky and deceitful in their actions. He's accusing them that their actions are not aligned with their heart and vice versa. This becomes clearer when he questions them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He knows why they're there. They're moved by fear and terrified of facing uh, judgment or the wrath of God that had been promised in the Old Testament. Now, John's preaching brings to mind the warnings of Yahweh that was given to Israel through the prophet Malachi, who warned, but who who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For behold, the day is coming, it's burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers doers will stumble, that day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will lead them neither root nor branch." John has been using the language of an Old Testament prophet to warn that judgment is at hand. God's wrath is coming. And they are to humble themselves in preparation for the Messiah's appearance. And it seems that his preaching is getting great results. The the people are coming in droves to repent and be baptized. However, John challenges the motivation behind their action. He warns them about false confessions and professions of faith. Go to verse 8. Once he has their undivided attention, he lays down a challenge. He calls them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, John understands that repentance involves more than just a verbal confession or agreement <clears throat> of God's command. It involves more than just religious rituals and spiritual symbolism. He realizes that one's behavior and actions reveal the motivation of the heart. In essence, John is warning them that a profession of faith is not enough, nor is baptism, but true repentance is demonstrated by the fruit it bears. He warns them of two errors. The first one we'll see is a, an assumption that they will be saved due to their heritage. They're assuming that they'll be saved due to their heritage. John warns them, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Because of their status as God's chosen people in the apple of His eye, they tended to look down on other ethnicities. This special status in Yahweh's eyes had led them to assume that they were better morally than anyone else. You might recall their attitude towards the Romans, the Samaritans, and other Gentiles who they likened to dogs. However, John here is warning them not to trust in physical ancestry, uh, religious rituals, or spiritual disciplines that are passed down through traditions and through the family line. To make the point even clearer, John declares that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He is admonishing them to not assume that your genealogy, your hereditary DNA, will save you from the wrath of God.
1: doesn't matter.
0: God says He can create children at will from rocks if need be. They believe themselves to be children of Abraham, yet John likened them to a brood of vipers. The second assumption is they are assumed that they were protected from judgment, that they could live their lives in any way they wanted. Since they were repositories of Yahweh's law and they were the caretakers of the temple, they believed that Yahweh would protect them from the final judgment. Their arrogance and rebellion against Yahweh and His commandment over the centuries have been well documented. Their history demonstrates God's judgment against them, yet they still assume that their continued disobedience would be overlooked or passed over. John demonstrates this false uh, assumption by declaring in verse 9 that even the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This warning is also taught by Jesus. Take your Bibles, turn back to Matthew chapter 7, and verse 15. We see in this passage that Matthew records on the Sermon on the Mount, this warning, Matthew 7, look at verse 15, Jesus warns, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot Bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree good or bear good fruit. So verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. And he ends in verse 20. Thus you will recognize him by their fruits. In these two warnings, both John and Jesus is telling them that their privileged status as the chosen children of God is in danger. Any profession of repentance must bear fruit. There must be a change in your behavior and actions. If not, they are in danger of being disinherited and cut off and thrown away. Jesus continues there in Matthew chapter 7, following up in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, here's the spiritual truth. This warning goes for us today as well. We must not assume on our heritage, our spiritual service, our baptism, or even our profession of faith, it, it is not genuine. John is right to question their actions. So... With that in mind, it's important for us to take some time to remind ourselves: what is true, genuine biblical repentance? What is it? Before we do that, let's consider what John's ministry included. Theologian Joel B. Green writes that John's ministry included a coming from their normal lives. The people were coming from their normal lives to participate in John's ministry of baptism and others. They were traveling, they were, they were doing something intentionally. Secondly, they were undergoing a repentance, signifying their renewed allegiance to God's purpose. There was a commitment that was happening in place that He was calling for. And then they were to call to return to their normal lives by living out the second commandment. So there was something that they were to demonstrate. It was just demonstrable. So something was, was more than just baptism and repenting. There was a, a calling for it. There was to be intentional. There was to be a commitment. And they were to demonstrate that repentance. Now as we learned two weeks ago, John was calling his listeners to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This baptism was to symbolize and testify of the forgiveness already received upon repentance. However, he understood that there were many who were being baptized but whose heart was not right. They were just going through the motions like so many of us today. Pastor. Dustin Benge warns us that outward piety is worthless if it does not reflect an inward love for God and His Word. In other words, true repentance that is symbolized by baptism calls for both an outward and an inward cleansing. This is so important for us to understand. J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century British preacher, wrote concerning repentance. Follow along with me if you would. He writes, repentance is a thorough change of a person's natural heart upon the subject of sin. He writes, we are all born in sin. We naturally love sin. We take to sin as soon as we can act and think, just as a bird takes to fly and a fish takes to swimming. There never was a child that required schooling or education in order to learn deceitfulness, selfishness, passion, self will. Bloody pride, and foolish. And you and I can understand this. He also goes on to write that these, uh, these things are not picked up from bad companions or gradually learned uh, by a long uh, course of tedious instruction. No, they spring up on themselves even when boys and girls are brought up alone. The seeds of them are evidently the natural product of the heart. The aptitude of all children to these evil things is an unanswerable proof of the corruption and fall of man. He goes on then to finish off, Now, when this heart of ours is changed, though, by the Holy Spirit, when this natural love of sin is cast out, then takes place that change which the Word of God calls repentance. The person whom the change is created is said to repent they may be called, in one word, a repentant person. So, as we consider the passage found here in Luke, John's questions, along with Ryle's encouraging, challenging words, it becomes very clear that something extraordinary must happen for true repentance to happen. It's not based on the strength of our will. It's not because of a strong, self-disciplined mind that you and I may have. It's not based on our heritage, our family uh, connections, or even submitting to religious rituals. Ryo goes on to state five marks of a genuine repentance. He says, true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin, so there's knowing the truth about God in ourselves. True repentance produces sorrow for sin. In other words, it's not a worldly grief that's just sorry because of the consequences of sin, but it's a godly grief that brings forth life. So there's a sorrow for sin. It understands what sin is. and understands the cost of sin. Thirdly, the true repentance produces a confession of sin. This is more than just saying, hey, I did this, but it's agreeing with God of the severity and the, and the, the problem with sin. And then fourthly, it's producing a breaking off of sin. There's a turning away from it, There's a saying, I I will not do that. There's a commitment, which then produces, number five, a deep hatred of sin, of fighting and fleeing sin. This is the life of those who are truly repentant. The question, though, that we must ask is, how do you and I experience that type of repentance? Obviously, John realizes that not all who were being baptized weren't truly repentant. A truth that you and I must understand is that repentance itself is a gift from God. It's not something that we can conjure up within ourselves. No, the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3-4, that the natural mind cannot comprehend the gospel, nonetheless respond positively to it. He writes in that passage that if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, that's You and I, that is all that is born in this world. He goes on to say that in their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in order for you and I to respond to the word of God in repentance, you and I first need our eyes open to our need of a Savior, we need a new heart that can respond to the gospel message. We need to be born again. We've heard that phrase many times, which means that you and I, before we can repent or bear fruit with repentance, we need to be regenerated. That's what the word born again it means, to be regenerated. It's regeneration. And Wayne Grudem defines regeneration simply as a secret act of God, in which He imparts a new life to us, a new spiritual life, I should say. So you and I need a work of God in our lives, which you and I do not understand and can't truly comprehend, in which He imparts that new spiritual life to us. Peter captures this truth in his first letter, in the third verse of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. You see, regeneration is the initial act of God that corresponds with the effective gospel call. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that casts off the scales, the blindfold that blinds our mind to the truth of the gospel. Now the results of regeneration are manifested when we see that we are inwardly cleansed and renewed. The Bible tells us, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray. It says that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but listen to this, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. But then we also receive a new kind of life. Again, Scripture tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then thirdly, but not lastly, we are brought into a new relationship with God. The Bible tells us that all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We have a new relationship. So when they're thinking of themselves as children of Abraham and children of God, you and I must realize that the only true children of God... listen. The only true children of God come not from birth, but from adoption. The only true children of God come not from birth, but from adoption. John understood that a true heart that responds in repentance due to this new heart, this regeneration, will show remarkable new attitudes and behaviors. True repentance is, is shown by a changed mind and a heart. That's evidence through behavior and through actions. As we continue in our passage in Luke 3, we're going to read that this warning and challenge had its desired effect. As the crowd would ask John in verse 10, what then shall we do? That's the response. I pray that's the response that you're having this morning. What then shall we do? Well, it seems that some were struck to the heart, and they desired to know and understand and demonstrate and live out what bearing fruit due to that repentance required. Well, as you and I move to verse 11 of chapter 3 of Luke, John answers their questions. In verse 11 it says he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In short, John calls them to be generous with their belongings. Now, a tunic was a short undergarment that was worn under the robe to keep one warm. Now, while we can readily understand the sharing of bread, they were also to share something themselves that was very personal to them, something that they would wear. Now, John is calling them not to hoard their belongings. Now, this becomes really real to you and I. During this this quarantine, this self-isolation, so to speak, social distancing, We're not to hoard our belongings, but we're to live generously. We're to share with others in need. So what shall we do? What are one of the ways in where we bear fruit with repentance? It's generosity. It's loving others. In verse 12, we read that the tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more money than you are authorized to do. You see, tax collectors made their living by living and they profited from overcharging the people and the taxes, the fees, and the tolls that they they would collect on behalf of the Roman Empire. They were hated by their countrymen and considered traitors for working with the Roman government. Yet John points out that they too were to repent and live differently. In this case, he has commanded them to be honest in their profession. So in this case, to to live and bear fruit in repentance is to be honest. Verse 14, we read then that the soldiers also came up to him, and they asked him, What shall we do? And John said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone, by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. The soldiers referenced here are most likely Jewish soldiers for Herod, not necessarily Roman soldiers. Herod was not a popular king. To many, he was a Roman pawn, and he wasn't even Jewish. The soldiers would use threats to intimidate and control the people. They were not content with their wages, so they would take and exhort and intimidate people to give them more money. They were guilty of using uh, extortion and false accusations, probably for imprisonment against the people that they were called to protect. They were discontent with their wages. They were John commands them instead that they must discharge their duty with integrity and be just. In summary, what we're seeing from these three groups of people, that they were coming to demonstrate their repentance through baptism, were required to live like children of Abraham, children of God. Just as a child emulates their father, they are to emulate God, Yahweh. And you and I are to do the same. And we understand God, God is merciful. God is loving, God is caring, God is compassionate, God is giving, God is generous, He is just, He is righteous. You see, when we come down to it, if you and I were to summarize, how do we show repentance? How do we demonstrate? How do we bear fruit? Let's well, demonstrate when we love God by loving our neighbors. It's as simple as that. Repentance is undergirded by a spirit of humility that seeks to love his neighbor as ourselves. Landon in our scripture reading earlier gave us in Romans 12, 9 through 21, some of the ways in which we are to do that as a body of believers to one another and to those uh, throughout our community. Pastor Sam Storms, a a pastor, sums up uh, repentance when he writes, true repentance then begins... When a, child, when a Christian is enabled by God's gracious power to transition out of self-delusion, or what modern psychologists might call denial, into what the Bible describes as a heartfelt conviction of sin. This in turn leads to the abandonment of a self-centered disobedience and is replaced by a God-centered life in which the Savior is honored and His people are served And his revealed word is obeyed true repentance actually requires a change in ethical behavior we are a new creation we are no longer self-centered but we are now christ-centered and centered on loving god and loving our neighbors theologian joel green notes that um, john is portrayed by luke as a prophet who's concerned with social renewal transformation he wants to see his his people listen to his message he wants them to prepare their hearts for Messiah but that repentance that recognition needs to come with a social and life transformation that's marked by bearing fruits with that repentance in the same way we here at OBC, those of us that profess to be children of God we should be leading the way in loving our neighbors especially in times of difficulty, today even we can look for ways to love our neighbors, to to show honor, to to honor them more than we honor ourselves. So let us follow John's command, uh, command to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The questions I would ask you this morning, as we get ready to close, is: Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Are you bearing fruits? in keeping with repentance? Does your life reflect the heart of the Father? Are you merciful, giving, generous, just, living in integrity? Does your attitude and actions reflect a regenerated heart? Are you fighting sin, fleeing sin? Do you see sin for what it truly is? And lastly, are you loving God by loving your neighbor? I'm gonna call you this morning, just pause a moment, would you consider the words and the passages of John? Would you pray and you respond to what God may be calling you to do this morning in bearing fruits in keeping with your repentance? In Galatians chapter 6.10, I want to close with this verse. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those that are the household of faith. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are looking forward to the day that we can all get back together. I miss your faces. I miss just seeing you. Would you just continue to be praying for each other? Reach out and touch each other in ways that uh, that share your love and demonstrate your care for them, whether it's through letters, notes, Facebook messages, text messages. Maybe reach out if you have a need. We want to pray for you. We want to meet that if we can, if we can let's do that. Let's be a church that loves one another and cares for one another, living out our repentance. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you again for this passage in John. Father, give us the strength, make us sufficient in our repentance. Lord, that we may glorify you, that, that our lives may be demonstrated by a, a true regenerated heart that's not only loving you, but loving others. Bring people in our lives, let us see the opportunities even during this difficult uh, time. Lord, that we may love others as you have called us to do. We thank you for this. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you. See you soon. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.